You are listening to KWVA Eugene. You on the News is a student-produced program at KWVA. The opinions expressed on the show do not reflect the opinions of KWVA, the University of Oregon, or any other affiliated organization. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to email news at kwvaradio.org with the subject line, You on the News. Hello and welcome to You Own the News. We are recording today on May 21st, so some things may have changed by the time you are listening. Today in the studio we have Sydney and me, Jessica. Here's a week in review. On Thursday, May 17th, Gina Haspel was officially announced as the new director of the CIA. But her new job comes with some controversy. Many people, including John McCain, opposed her nomination. Here's why. Haspel ran a CIA black site in Thailand in 2002, where people were tortured for information in a variety of ways, including waterboarding, and she played an integral role in destroying the recordings of those incidents. There was, in fact, so much controversy around her nomination that she even offered to withdraw, but the White House decided to move forward. Her supporters claim she has consistently been a strong leader. Haspel will be the first female director of the agency. I'm actually... I don't want to say proud of John McCain, but I think it's nice that John McCain is speaking out against his own party. And I think he's been doing that a lot lately because I think especially lately there's been a lot of just party polarity. But he's speaking out more on the actual issues as opposed to staying loyal to his party. So he's just, I think, prioritizing really well because, yeah, torture is bad. I think that this draws on a larger conversation that needs to be had in this country about what our country's values are and how much we are willing to stick with those values because her nomination is sort of like tacit acceptance of this sort of behavior and this sort of um, government action. And that's not that surprising considering some of the actions that the U.S. government continues to take. I think this opens the doorway to a larger conversation that we need to be having. Last Tuesday, the Board of Trustees at Michigan State University agreed to pay $500 million to settle the lawsuit against Larry Nassar, the former USA Gymnastics team doctor and osteopathic position at Michigan State University. Nassar was convicted of child molestation of over 350 of his patients. $425 million will be paid to the current 332 current claimants, and an additional $75 million was put in a trust fund for, quote, any future claimants alleging sexual abuse by Larry Nassar. This settlement does not address the USA Gymnastics team. Each claimant will receive approximately $1.3 million. The New York Times reports that experts say this settlement is the largest settlement involving sex abuse for a public university. Michigan State is paying this money out of pocket, and their ratings have plummeted since the 2016 lawsuit. Nassar worked as a doctor at the university since the late 1990s, and while the school officials maintained that sexual abuse was not confirmed until the lawsuit was filed, victims had spoken up about Nassar in the past. While survivors have generally expressed support for the settlement, it is also regarded as just the first step in a longer process of shifting the cultural power dynamic that allowed the abuse to go on for so long. This is really indicative of the times we're living in now and the change that we're seeing because if he's been working there since the late 1990s and people have come forward before and been ignored or dismissed or 
maybe even listened to, but ultimately not given justice. 2018 is the year of justice so far for victims of sexual abuse uh, that's based in like extreme power dynamics. I'm excited to see more justice come. Yeah, I'm also really interested to see how this settlement will be handled because I think so far since the lawsuit has been filed, Michigan State has been taking pretty good responsibility and owning up to it. But I hope that this huge lawsuit isn't just being used as a sort of hush money or just like really settling the issue because as some of the victims have spoken out, this is just a microcosm of a huge issue. And this is just one example that we need to be tackling. And the settlement doesn't actually stop the entire, like, cultural issue. For anyone who has been paying attention to the Cannes Film Festival, uh, Asia Argento gave a really powerful speech at the festival about sexual abuse in Hollywood, which um, I think is sort of the thing that spurred all of this momentum. And um, her her words are really powerful because she was talking about how, like, now that we have made these strides, we can't go back. And the only thing that we can do is move forward. Things like this will not be allowed to happen in the future. They won't be swept under the rug because people are paying attention now. Yeah, I think that that does bring up why exactly... Um, this settlement and this lawsuit is happening now um, in the midst sort of of the Me Too movement and I guess kind of following because since he has been employed with the university since the 1990s um, and the victims are just now receiving at least some sort of acknowledgement and justice, I think that it's this is a really topical issue as part of a really big cultural conversation. Earlier this month, President Trump withdrew the United States from the controversial and landmark 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Rather than renegotiate the deal, the administration has laid out 12 requirements for Iran that mirror sanctions that were in place prior to the deal. These sanctions are meant to put financial pressure on Iran. The dissolution of the deal will have a major impact on Iran's economy and its business relationships with international corporations that began trading with Iran after 2015. Some of the demands the U.S. has laid out include Iran withdrawing all of its military forces from Syria, ending its support for any militant groups, stop sending arms to the Houthi militia in Yemen, release all U.S. citizens, and cease its threats to destroy Israel, which leads us into an even larger conversation about Israel, Palestine, two-state solution, all of that. Yeah, I all I have to say is I don't really think that increased financial pressure will cause peace in the region at all. I think that maybe this isn't a step in the right direction. um, And I would not be surprised at all if there's an increase in violence and conflict in the entire area. I agree. Uh, Historically, strong arming countries into doing what you want has not super worked, especially a country like Iran who has had such we have had such a tense relationship with Iran and I just don't think that trying to strong arm them into doing something trying to force them and pigeonhole them and like back them into a corner 
is going to get us what we want, whatever that might be. Um, I know a lot of people in the U.S. are very supportive of the Iran nuclear deal. So it's hard to know, like, what the overall goal is here. Yeah, I think if we are looking at um, the bigger long-term goal, then this is not something, not really a move that is going to work in achieving this goal and finding some kind of peace. That'll do it for you on the news. Stay tuned after our PSA for our feature story on environmental racism. We are your pets, and this song's dedicated to those people who don't have health insurance yet. Enroll, we say, we want you to be okay. Enroll, we say, take care, people, for goodness sake. Health insurance is now affordable. It covers prescriptions, hospitalizations, and preventive care. Visit GetCoveredAmerica.org to learn more. And take care, people. Brought to you by Get Covered America and the Ad Council. Okay. I guess next I'd like to ask if you have any personal stories about being affected by environmental racism. Yeah, absolutely. Where to start? (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to Dr. Kyle White of Michigan State University, and he didn't hesitate to help me realize how silly it was to ask a Native American if they have personal stories of being affected by environmental racism. I'm from... uh, tribe, the citizen Potawatomi Nation, and our kind of, you know, entire way of thinking about, you know, our situation is a response to environmental racism. So we are originally, in terms of our homelands, from the Great Lakes region, from what's currently Michigan, Indiana, the Chicago area, Wisconsin, and the United States forced us to move in the 19th century to Oklahoma and then forced us to take on private property. And we literally had to rebuild our nation from scratch because the U.S. at the time was trying to put all of the tribes into what was called Indian Territory, which is now the, currently the state of Oklahoma. And so they forced us to walk on what's now called the Trail of Death. For Um, context, southern tribes like the Cherokee had to walk to Oklahoma on what was called the Trail of Tears, which I think we all learned about in grade school. And so we literally had to completely rebuild our society. And a lot of Potawatomi people, people in my tribe, actually thought at the time, uh, because Oklahoma didn't appear to be that attractive of a place to settle, that that was a pretty good place to go because, you know, white people wouldn't want to settle that area. (laughs) Of course, what happened is that Oklahoma became attractive to white people because of the oil industry, because of commercial agriculture, um, uh, and for other purposes as well. And so Oklahoma eventually became a a territory and then um, a state. And so tribes like mine and, you know, even families like mine were affected by pollution from the oil industry. We were largely dispossessed of our property holdings by a number of different you know, tricks and illegal dealings that non-Native people did. And then because the farming that they were doing in Oklahoma, the non-Native people was so unsustainable, we were hit hard from the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl was not just about extreme drought, was about how they were messing up the land, which made the drought even worse. And so a lot of Potawatomi people and other tribes in the area also fled to California um, and migrated again. 
Environmental racism is the idea that some groups of people are disproportionately affected by climate change. Native Americans build their lives around the natural world and with changing ecosystems that's getting harder and harder. Take the Navajo Nation for example. They can't grow all the corn they need to because yearly snowfall is too low. Native Americans are rarely a part of the conversation when the government starts deciding what to do with the land. One major part of the Oklahoma Dust Bowl that happened almost a century ago is that farmers tore native plant species out of the soil. Those native plants retain water really well and could have prevented such a disaster. So, how would this story be different if the people that knew the land had a say in how we use the land? In cases where tribes are partnering equally with the U.S. or Canadian government, I think you see a lot of success. Um, but in cases where the government is like, okay, we've got a, a funding program or we have a, a policy and we're going to do it anyways, but we want tribal input, you know, that's too late to get tribes involved. Um, and one of the studies that I did with a number of collaborators, including uh, Nick Rio and Deborah McGregor, we were looking at what Native people say about like the best ways to collaborate. And they actually say that it's only going to be a good collaboration if Native people and the government, federal government, are involved at the point of conception of the project. Dr. White believes there are a few things crucial to making collaborations between the government and the federally recognized tribes successful. To start, it's important to build trust between the two entities. As we know, trust hasn't always been strong between the two. Second, it's important to understand a tribe's capacity to consult. This was an issue at Standing Rock. The Sioux tribe there didn't have the same level of funding and people that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had to collaborate. Another huge part of successful collaboration is including tribal knowledge and including it at the conception of the project. So like any society, indigenous people on Turtle Island in, in North America develop their own. Real quick, what are you referring to when you say Turtle Island? North America. Okay. So indigenous people in North America, like any society, developed their own knowledge systems in order to have reliable information about how to, you know, get healthy food, um, how to live sustainably with the environment, uh, you know, and many other purposes. And indigenous knowledge systems have a lot of unique aspects uh, to them that people typically don't think about. I went to Haley K. Scott, a senior at the University of Oregon, to learn more about tribal knowledge. Since tribes have been here for pretty much time immemorial, they have this vast knowledge of the land and how to be effective stewards of the land, right? So it's that it goes back to that traditional knowledge or it's such a long history because they've had such direct contact with the land, like everything they do is based off the land, right? Their whole their whole cultures, the traditions, you know, lifestyles, identity, it's all tied into the land. It's that's why it's so important and that's why indigenous communities today are being so disproportionately affected by climate change. And I think if we were able to take like climate change initiatives from like other organizations or you know any kind of science that's being conducted in terms of trying to find solutions, if it was able to weave in that traditional knowledge and that traditional ecological knowledge, then maybe we could actually find effective solutions of how to address these impacts that we're you know experiencing now in terms of environmental quality or anything, you know, because Tribal people have been here forever. They know the land, they know what they're doing. 
Haley is a member of the Celeste tribe, and the ability to help her community is very important to her. In the spring, she'll be earning her degree in political science and Native American studies. I'm really interested in working with communities, like directly American politics. You know, they vastly differ from tribal politics, and I feel like I'd be able to make more of a change if, you know, I worked for my tribe. This is something Dr. White touched on as well. When Native people are part of the U.S. government, they have a lot of other rules to fulfill and therefore would not just be working to help their tribe. Currently, government positions that work most directly with tribes are called tribal liaisons, but their pay isn't great. The position generally is a starting point for government careers, so as the tribal liaison advances, they work less and less directly with their tribe. So while it's true that there is emphasis and energy behind increasing tribal involvement in the U.S. government and hiring Native people and working to better collaborate with, with tribes until it really gets aligned with people's career aspirations, it's, it's not going to be as meaningful as it could be. Beyond that, Haley pointed out that having a Native American in the United States government doesn't necessarily mean that all Native Americans are being represented. Remember, each tribe functions differently, so using one native to represent the whole doesn't fix the issue. I think there are a lot of people who are trying to take, take back their own face, right? You know, being able to speak for their own communities, but it's, I think it's still a problem because, again, it's kind of what I've already said. You, you don't want those people speaking for you if they don't even know you or if they've never even been in that community or if they've never talked to like elders in the community. They haven't talked to the youth in the community. This doesn't like, mean, though, that representation is a lost cause. Collaboration with the Native Americans can still play a role in conversations about climate change. In fact, there are several instances in which that collaboration has been successful. Dr. White gave me a couple of examples. What I think is important to note is that oftentimes a lot of the, the good work that, that tribes do do uh, with the United States goes unnoticed. And, you know, so to give you an example, um, one of the topics that I write about a lot is sturgeon restoration. So sturgeon's a big fish. We have it in the Great Lakes, um, which is where I live. It's a native fish to the area and a pretty central fish to many indigenous people's identities in the Great Lakes. And due to dams and pollution and logging and a number of other factors that uh, were part of U.S. and Canadian colonialism, you know, a lot of areas, their sturgeon populations were damaged pretty bad. And so tribes have really wanted to bring sturgeon back um, and do so in a way that was consistent with their heritage and traditions surrounding sturgeon. So tribes like the Little River Band of Odawa Indians, uh, White Earth Nation, uh, Rainy River First Nation on the Canada side, the Menominee Nation, all of them have sturgeon restoration programs that have actually been very successful, both in the sense of restoring sturgeon populations, but also educating Native and non-Native people about the importance of sturgeon for the ecosystem. And all of those projects were ones in which the tribe worked both with its own communities, so with elders and youth and you know leaders in the community to develop the restoration project, but also with a number of local and federal government partners. People forget that Native people, you know, largely survived U.S colonialism, but had to figure out how the U.S. system worked in order to uh, facilitate that 
survival. And so Native people have a lot of experience trying to innovate within U.S. law and policy. I mean, here in the Pacific Northwest, the tribes here have done incredible work with treaty rights and trying to really make treaty rights that are oftentimes very much in like the idiom and grammar of the United States work as much as possible for protecting the tribe's cultural, spiritual, social, and political and economic connections to salmon and other fish and shellfish, um, as well as other species protected by the treaties. And so I think for indigenous people, you know, we definitely are right there and willing to find different ways to make our knowledge systems and perspectives more prominent within the U.S. government, U.S. educational systems, and other sectors. So let's get hyper-local here. The University of Oregon has actively worked to bring Native Americans into the conversation. Dr. White was actually here as a speaker for a symposium titled Environmental Justice, Race, and Public Lands. The goal was to cultivate research and relationships to address environmental and social issues. The event was led by the Environmental Studies Program and the Tribal Climate Change Project, which Haley works on. The TCCP is a collaboration between the USDA Forest Service Pacific Northwest Research Station, the Affiliated Tribes of Northwest Indians, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the North Pacific Landscape Conservation Cooperative. So, collaboration happening here on campus. Um, I'm going to quote from the homepage of tribalclimate.uoregon.edu. The project focuses on understanding needs and opportunities for tribes in addressing climate change, examining government-to-government relationships in climate contexts, and exploring the role of traditional knowledge in climate change studies, assessments, and plans. It focuses on highlighting what tribes are already doing, you know, in the environmental justice movement and just the kind of innovative plans they're trying to create for themselves and how they're going to address climate change and just how it's affecting their people. And we also try to focus on just providing funding and more information and just making it more accessible to tribes. Well, we just implemented a new health tab and it's because we want to really focus on how climate change is uh, affecting tribal communities and their health, right? And this work hasn't necessarily gone unnoticed either. The Tribal Climate Change Project has implemented an efficient way to communicate about environmental racism. Here's some closing remarks from Dr. White. I hope that uh, folks here on campus at the University of or- Oregon you know, realize that uh, you know, in- indigenous people have very powerful visions of justice and We also have a lot to share about what we've been through through colonization. And for those of us who claim to be environmentalists and claim to be interested in in social justice, uh, indigenous people have to be right there. And the University of Oregon has a lot of fantastic faculty working in indigenous studies that focus on justice issues. And I hope to see that conversation continue to be happening on this campus. I'm Sam Sorgiasi, and I want to extend a special thanks to Dr. Kyle White and Haley K. Scott for sharing their knowledge with me, and now all of you. Good night. That'll do it for You on the News. Thank you for listening. Tune in next Wednesday and every Wednesday for more You on the News. Don't touch that dial. Arts and culture is coming up.
When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. I want to be a warm place on a cold I want to day. Be a football I want to be a bike that races around the country. I want to be a bench on a forest trail. When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. Brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council.